You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Okay, we're underway. Hey, Daniel, how are you doing? Good, Glenn. How are you doing? I'm fine. This is Glenn Show. This is Glenn Lowry at the Glenn Show. Bloggingheads.tv, also patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. Uh, I'm a professor at Brown University, uh, host of the podcast here. And I'm talking to Daniel Besner, who is an assistant professor uh, at the School of International Studies at the University of Washington, the Henry Jackson School. Uh, Daniel and I are now in the third round of the Frost-Nixon tapes. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> no, you yeah, don't. of course. Really? I don't remember it. Uh, you probably have seen no. the Frost-Nixon. <laughs> Daniel is interviewing me about my intellectual origins and uh, about my uh, development as a political, uh, public intellectual and as, a, as an economist. And we've been talking about my early education and also about my early career. And um, he's going to continue on in this process. We're in the 1990s now. Uh, yes. And, uh, I'm going to turn it over. Uh, turn it over to Daniel, but thanks uh, to Daniel for doing this. And uh, thanks, as always, Glenn, for having me. So we, we are now in the end of history. We're now in the mid-1990s. The United States has won. Capitalism has proven to the world that it is the only political system worthy of the name, even. Um, so I would like to talk a bit about, you, you famously have a break from the, the right, broadly speaking, in the um, mid-1990s. Uh, and so I was hoping that we could perhaps, uh, Glenn, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I'm, I'm just trying to adjust my uh, um, headphones so that uh, I get the audio through the headphone, but that's okay. I'm, I'm, I've got my speaker on the laptop and I've got my <laughs> microphone on the headphones. So, yeah. So we'll, we'll make it work uh, somehow. Forgive me. I'm, I'm sorry that I was distracted. I, I knew that you were doing a filler kind of thing and I was just going to do that little thing, but you have my complete attention now, Daniel. No, no, no worries. I mean, I'm sure you'd admit if we were living under socialism, we'd have perfectly working technology. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, the dynamics of the free market have failed once again. No, just kidding. Um, but uh, so I just wanted to, if you could talk about sort of what makes you break from the, you know, the broadly speaking right or, you know, move a little bit to the left in the mid-1990s, particularly focusing, of course, on Charles Murray's The Bell Curve and then uh, Dinesh D'Souza's Is it The End of Racism? I believe was the name well, of the these book. These were two books, yeah. Uh, the Bell Curve was 94. The End of Racism was 96, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, I believe it's 95. I just happened to look it up. Oh, no, it was 95, okay. Uh, that's the one Dinesh D'Souza, the notorious Dinesh D'Souza. But the, the general proposition, so I break with the right. So we set the stage in talking about my friendship with neoconservatives and my, you know, sort of a sojourn as a, as a conservative African-American intellectual. Um, three books. So I have a cover story and then there's like the deeper story. You know, I'm working on this memoir. Everybody, I'm really, I am working on it. I really am. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, uh, you know, what's holding me up is that the cover story is too pat and that the real story is just too hard to face at some level. You remember when I talked about choking as a, a professor at Harvard in the early 1980s, you know, the cover story was, the cover story was, uh, what, what was the cover story? Uh, I, I wanted to have a more capacious intellectual palette, so I went over to the Kennedy School so I wouldn't be in this green eye shade business. But the real truth of it was I was afraid I was going to fail. 
at the very top rank of academic economic theory and uh, kind of didn't persist and take my chances, but instead grabbed the safety net of the thing that puts it too sharply. But it's the, the, that's the same kind of contrast that I want to draw here. So the cover story about why I became more uh, alienated from the right was three books, D'Souza's The Bell Curve, Murray and Herrnstein's, uh, I mean, D'Souza's The End of Racism, Murray and Herrnstein's The Bell Curve. These were both fellows at the American Enterprise Institute when the books appeared and I was on the advisory committee, the academic advisory committee to the uh, president of the American Economic Institute at that time. That committee was chaired by James Q. Wilson. And I had a lot of people on it, including the distinguished intellectual historian, Gertrude Himmelfarb. Uh, and I was a member of that committee. We would meet once a year or twice and advise uh, Christopher DeMuth, president then of the American Enterprise Institute on the academic portfolio of the Institute and that portfolio included people like Dinesh D'Souza, who was a resident fellow and Charles Murray, who was a resident fellow, people who would sit in their offices or in their home offices and write books uh, under the imprimatur of the American Enterprise Institute and people who wanted to support these people writing the books could funnel the money through the American Enterprise Institute, which gave an institutional home to their, to their endeavors. Uh, and, and I ended up resigning from that, board publicly with a front page story in the Wall Street Journal and uh, all of that, you know, breaking, you know, blacks, black conservatives break with the AI. Uh, that was the cover. I say three books because the third book was America in Black and White. That was Abigail and Stephen Thurston, or perhaps I should say Stephen and Abigail Thurston. I think that may be the order in which their names are listed. Stephen, a very distinguished American historian at Harvard, and Abigail Fernstrom, he and she, husband and wife, um, in her own right, a distinguished uh, a political scientist, although, of course, not of the degree of distinction, I think, of her husband in the academic realm. But in any case, a formidable figure. And they had put out a book called American Black and White, which I critically reviewed in the Atlantic Monthly in 1997. The cover story was that these books, and especially the bell curve notorious because of the eugenics kind of thing. I mean, we could go into it. We could go into it, okay? Uh, it's a long, deep rabbit hole, as I think you know, once you start going down that. Uh, the Bell Curve, these are not the same books. Uh, the Bell Curve is a serious book. Let me say it again for the people who may be made uncomfortable by that acknowledgement. Ernstein and Mary wrote a book 25, nearly 30 years ago, that has had a profound impact on the American intellectual landscape. It's a serious book. These issues must be reckoned with. The idea you can give them the back of your hand and you can just dismiss it a priori and that you can just peremptorily condemn it as some kind of fascistic intellectual mutterings is unserious. It's not really trying to grapple with the reality. It's a serious book. It has its issues. We could go into it. That was Marion Herrnstein. Herrnstein was a very accomplished psychologist before he ever met Charles Murray. Charles Murray is one of the most impactful populist uh, social science writers of the second half of the 20th century. That's not even a, a question. Um, losing ground, 
shaped a decade later the political compromise between Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton, which was the 1996 Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, otherwise known as welfare reform. Mary's book was written 10 years before, and the entire conversation that ensued after it largely was in reaction to that book. The bell curve is still being talked about, and it opened up a huge uh, frontier in the interplay between science and social and ethics uh, in the discussion of inequality and, and social status in America. There's not any question about that. Um, uh, coming apart is, is a uh, prescient uh, uh, perception into the landscape of, of social inequality and, and striving. It hasn't got anything to do with race. This is about the opioid epidemic and about inequality at the bottom of American society. It's about the same kind of thing uh, that Michael Sandel is writing about in his brilliant book, uh, The Meritocracy, uh, uh, the, what does he call it? Meritocracy Trap, I think that's what he calls it. But in any case, Murray is a very impactful. So that was a serious book. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza is a cartoonist. He, he's an he's a, uh, agent provocateur. Uh, he, he's a, a polemicist. He always was from the Dartmouth Review days back in the, in the 1980s. He's smart. He's got a, a quick pen, uh, but he's completely unprincipled. Uh, and, and he's mad. He's nuts. Uh, and he's a bomb thrower. Okay, so when he decided to take up the issue of race and write a silly book called The End of Racism with a full patina of sophisticated engagement with the great philosophical questions of, of modernity, but underneath basically uh, a sophomoric, uh, smug, glib, uh, you know, uh, he meant nothing good. He meant nothing good of it. Uh, there, there is this famous, I don't know if the tale is apocryphal, where Gore Vidal is supposed to have said to Norman Podhoritz, yeah, 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 but you never understood the Civil War, did you? This is Gore, the patrician, wasp, and Vidal, I mean, uh, Gore Vidal, the patrician wasp, and Norman Podhoritz, the, the grasping, climbing yid, Okay. And, and, and Vidal thinks he can put him down by calling him an immigrant. You know, the son of an immigrant. You know, somebody who doesn't really yet quite get America. Well, that might have been very unfair to Norman Podhoritz, but it's damn sure an accurate account of Dinesh D'Souza. He's that climbing, grasping yid who's trying uh, to make a, a, a way in American elite uh, intellectual life by uh, standing on the backs... And, and that, the walking on the corpses <laughs> of the real Americans, I'm talking about my ancestors who were here two centuries before his boat arrived. You get it? Do you get it? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I said this about uh, D'Souza in so many words at a, a meeting of the Bill Buckley, William uh, F. Buckley, the great Bill Buckley, and Richard John Newhouse, the late Richard John Newhouse, the intellectual uh, and... Um, theologian. Uh, they used to have a confab of conservative intellectuals who'd get together in New York and Washington twice a year for a dinner. And you, we'd have it out. It was behind closed doors at the Union League Club in New York City or whatever. And we'd have it out. And D'Souza and I were having it out. And I basically recounted this Vidal Podhoritz story, but with the personas changed. Paul Weirich, 
Do you know who he was? Paul yeah. Weirich, Catholic uh, political entrepreneur uh, behind the, the uh, moral majority kind of welfare, kind of uh, right wing, uh, so, uh, culturally conservative uh, upswing of the 1980s, looked me in the eye and said, I get it. I know what you're saying. Because it was the American story that was at stake about race. And um, uh, Dinesh D'Souza was going to make a cartoon out of it. The, the black communities are places where the streets are irrigated with alcohol, urine, and blood. This kind of thing. The content of our chromosomes, that was the title of one of the chapters of this silly book that was given the imprimatur of the American Enterprise Institute. So I distinguish clearly, sharply, between uh, Hernstein and Mary's book, objectionable as it may have been for reasons that we could go into, uh, and Dinesh D'Souza, which was deeply offensive to me. Do you know, I wrote a review, The Weekly Standard, that's Bill Crystal's uh, defunct now magazine, but it had a run. Had a run of a couple of decades at the top, you know, of American journalism on the right. Did a great uh, job with that. <laughs> Uh, the, the standard asked me to review the book, and uh, I wrote a review of it, uh, not quite as vituperative as the comments I just made, but nevertheless in the same spirit. Do you know that before the review was printed, the people at the American Enterprise Institute, including D'Souza, had a copy of my review and were invited to write a rebuttal? No. Wow. Well, that in the very issue of the Weekly Standard in which my critical review of the end of racism appeared, the inside front cover of the magazine given over to commentary was given to Dinesh D'Souza to rebut my review so that the magazine reader would read his rebuttal if they didn't get to the table of contents first before they actually read my review. Um, Anyway, um, I, I digress. Uh, the, there were three books, and this was a cover story, but okay, the cover story is a pretty good story, right? I got the bell curve to be mad about. I got this silly book to be mad about. And then my friends, Abigail Thernstrom and Stephen Thernstrom, put out, after many years of labor, their masterwork, America in Black and White. Uh, what do they call it? America in Black and White. And then they have a subtitle. Uh, one Nation Indivisible, I think it might be. But in any case, so they make their argument, and their argument is a neoconservative critique of the civil rights kind of narrative. Uh, and I could go into details about it. I didn't like it, but I could have been kinder to it in the review. Uh, in the review, I said there are no gunner murder. I, I said they, they, they pretend to chronicle the status 50 years after Myrdal of the, of the American dilemma, and they fall short. Um, I say they're too ideological. They're too, they're too interested in telling me why the liberals are wrong. Uh, but it's not enough to be right about the liberals being wrong. Uh, the, 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 this was me in the mid-1990s. By now, I've gone through a Christian conversion. I've gone through a personal you know, catastrophe in my life of exposing wrongdoing and having the mea culpa and climb my way back to respectability. 
and and I'm very you know sympathetic to the idea that we've got a problem in the inner cities and in the jails of the country and on the welfare rolls and in the schools with the achievement gap and so on. We got an exclusionary problem. Uh, people are not really being included within the prosperity of the Commonwealth uh, in very large numbers racially, and and we have to be. You know, even if we think the liberals are wrong, even if we think affirmative action has its problems, even if we think welfare incentives are off base and need reforming, uh, even if we're skeptical about the claims of, of big labor, uh, you know, et cetera, um, even if we know that crime needs to be met in some way with punishment in some shape or form, still, we can't be content to simply watch this thing go on and on and on the way that it is. It's not enough to smugly just kind of beat your chest and point out the idiocy of these people. You're shooting fish in a barrel. This is basically what I said about uh, the Thurston. They're shooting fish in a barrel. It's just too easy. Uh, they, they too, uh, you know, um, uh, anyway, and this was my, you can get the spirit of, of, of kind of where I was coming from. And I let it all out, but these were my friends. Uh, my son, Glenn, who's in his 30s now, as an infant, was presented by Abby a red lobster stuffed animal, which he loved. He carried around for years. You know, that was Abby. And she had introduced me to these people, and she was my booster in certain circles. Um, and she felt betrayed by this 7,000-word review Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's a hell of a review. If I can say this, it was absolutely exquisitely written. I mean, it was, it, and it was chapter and verse. It wasn't a whole lot of, you know, preaching as I've just been doing. It was on page 327, they say the following year. Let me tell you what's wrong with that. And there were like eight sections of what's wrong with that. <laughs> Here's how they get this one wrong. Here's how they get that one wrong. Here's how they get, they let their, passion, their ideological passion, blinker, their analytic capacities, and they get it wrong again and again and again, says Glenn Lowry uh, at the top of his voice, ad infinitum in the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, Jack Beatty was very happy to get that piece, uh, you know, uh, and, and, they, and they broke off with me and I never spoke to them again. Abby is dead. I never spoke to her again after that. Um, so there were three books. So that's the cover story. So the cover story was I woke up one day, you know, and realized I could not go to Jerusalem <laughs> and, and I could not go to Rome, you know, and, and I could not go to Belfast or Dublin. I was going to have to go back to Chicago, you know, uh, my uncle Alfred, uh, probably in the early 1990s, I went to the University of Illinois Chicago campus to give a lecture, and he and his sons, he's a father of 23. Pretty, pretty, wow. <laughs> multiple, multiple moms. Uh, it's a long story, I won't go into it, but he was this kind of guy, this patriarch, and the various families were kind of united and he showed up with his sons. I mean, you know, he had like 12 sons. He showed up with eight of them at this lecture. Uh, and at the reception that the historian Deidre McCloskey, the economic historian Deidre McCloskey had at her swank uh, pad in uh, the near north side of uh, Chicago. 
uh, after the lecture, he and his son showed up at the reception. It was quite interesting. These Southside brothers in this uh, Tony, uh, you know, uh, university crowd. It was it was a, it was quite a night. But in any case, he said to me, he said to me once, he said, "Son, we can only send one, you know, to MIT and Harvard. We sent you, and we don't see us in anything you do." They could not relate to me. They, and they thought I had betrayed them. And this is my, my uncle, my mother's brother. I loved him. He's been gone for some years now. But um, so I was in this space, the Christian conversion thing. I mean, man does not live by bread alone. Do they teach you that in the left-wing uh, political theory school? I went to Jewish day school my entire life, and I, I believe that's New Testament. So, no, they don't teach it. <laughs> yeah, that's New Testament. That's Jesus being tempted uh, by the devil, and man does not live by bread alone. And there's just like a profound wisdom in that. And, you know, what about my identity? What about my fealty? What, who am I? You know, what am I loyal to? Who are my people? What's my project? I started asking myself these questions. What's my project? Is my project to be a, a, a black bomb thrower who's, you know, is the kind of, you know, antidote to uh, the aspirations of, uh, as expressed by conventional left-leaning uh, African-American leadership and intellectual uh, expression? Is that my, is that my uh, project? What's my project? Um, and so I, I, was, I was moving in my self-identity. I was moving in my spiritual and moral commitments. I was moving in my sense of political affiliation. And I had the and I had the three books, but it's a good cover story. But in a way, it's just a cover story because the real story is, I wanted to be embraced again by the African American cognoscenti. I, I wanted to get off of this stage, to step out of this spotlight, and to get away from the distress and the overwhelming burden of, of being, you know, this kind of lone dissenter. Um, I, I didn't like this, the uh, life that I saw in front of me uh, as this, uh, you know, I could have been a kind of Clarence Thomas-like figure if I hadn't had that personal uh, peccadillo. It was more than a peccadillo. It was a serious misstep that became public and caused me to have to pull out of political life in 1987. Uh, I was on this glide path to, you know, a certain kind of political uh, career. And, and I thank God, I, I'm no longer the believer that I was in the 90s, but I thank God that I did not uh, go, that, go that route. Um, so uh, <laughs> the real story is I wanted a kind of unity in my life that uh, integrated my ethnic and racial identity with my political and intellectual work. And uh, I, I wanted to, I wanted back in. I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to be, and, and I was ashamed, you know, I was scandalized. I was this uh, tragic figure, you know, I had flown too close to the sun. Uh, I was a hypocrite. I had been preaching values and morality, almost went to work for William Bennett. The Book of Virtues, William Bennett. I almost went to work for him as his deputy at the Department of Education in the Reagan administration. 
and then here I am, you know, out of wedlock, drugs, you know, kind of, I'm a cute, yeah, you know, I'm this scoundrel, I'm this, you know, um, the very enemy within, that is the enemy within African-American society, which I was trumpeting a decade before when I broke through with that uh, article that I told you about in uh, the New Republic, the enemy without white racism, the enemy within black social pathology. But what about the enemy within Glenn Lowry? You know, the uh, psycho uh, political uh, uh, conflict within Glenn Lowry, the uh, Glenn Lowry who knew even as he was writing the let the little girls pull up their uh, uh, pull up their socks and let let the boys put their nose to grindstone and keep their noses clean and let's get on with the project of building black America. You know, I, I was living a, a, the life of a libertine. Uh, I was indulging my basest, you know, whatever. And I, I was without the kind of discipline that it would have been necessary for any one of these poor lower class African-American uh, subjects to muster if they were going to follow the path that I was articulating was the only, it was the only way out. The conflict was kind of unbearable. I wanted relief from that. You know, I, I, I wanted what I got. Uh, by the time you get to September 11, 2001, the, the catastrophe for the terrorist attack. And there's a meeting in Cambridge a couple of months after 9-11 where Jesse Jackson is in the chair of political and intellectual leaders in the Boston area, Harvard and all of that, uh, to brainstorm about how to respond to the national crisis. I'm invited to the meeting. I'm invited to the meeting and Jesse from the podium specifically singles me out and says, I'm okay. And I thought, you know, job well done. I've, I've, I've come home. I've come home, you know. Thanks for letting me talk on for (laughs) no. That was that was really amazing stuff. I mean, there's a whole stream of thought that I think we've um, has been submerged throughout this uh, conversation, which are questions of authenticity and how your um, understanding of authenticity changed over time, which we don't really have enough to get into, but I just wanted to highlight it just sort of as an intellectual historian, because I think it's a theme that many intellectuals from working class backgrounds uh, struggle with, um, regardless of of racial and ethnic identity. Um, And I think, you know, um, it it was Pahoritz who wrote Making It, right? Yes, that's Pahoritz. That's Pahoritz. That was his great book. That was his breakthrough book, and it also pushed him away from the leftist circles because I think it also has to do with questions of authenticity and leaving the ghetto. And I use that term specifically both for him in the Jewish sense and then in also, of course, the black American sense. And this is a theme I think that you see throughout the second half of the 20th century in this country because you have the arrival of non-wasps into very elite spaces almost within a generation or two. And so questions of identity are, of of course, central um, and, and this is, I think, if one were to write an intellectual biography of you, one would make that connection, as always, to sort of the Jewish leaders who uh, you associated with early in your career and then returning back to, like, black Chicago in the mid to late 90s, which I think is very interesting. But just one thing that I wanted to add, um, or wanted to ask, rather, is that there's also this the macro political fact that Bill Clinton is not Jimmy Carter. 
right? Bill Clinton is the era of big government is over. He's the one who passes the welfare reform bill in 96. He's the one who basically, at least historians today argue, really solidifies the Reagan revolution, right? Like Margaret Thatcher's famous quote, what's your biggest accomplishment, Tony Blair, right? Someone could ask that, uh, say the same thing about Bill Clinton and, and Ronald Reagan. So I just wanted to highlight that there was also a political space for you to quote unquote move left because the left had moved right, in some sense, and had embraced some of the arguments that um, the, the Republicans were making in the 80s and 90s. So I just wanted to highlight that as a general theme. And then uh, one... Daniel, may I just say, excuse me for interrupting, you were brilliant interlocutor. I'm looking <laughs> at a framed letter. I could get it and show it to the camera right now, but I won't. That's too theatrical. Signed by William Jefferson Clinton, Bill Clinton. <laughs> where he had something called a national conversation on race in 1996. He presided over a national conversation on race and I criticized it in the Washington post. And he wrote me one of these Clinton-esque letters saying, yeah, man, I can see kind of what you're saying, you know, but I have to try to do the best I can. I appreciate you, you know, whatever. (laughs) It's right there. I can reach out and touch it. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I think it's, you're right. Yeah, no, and I think it's, you were living in basically a, a post-New Deal world, whatever we want to call it, neoliberal, but that was that space. So there was also space for that type of plasticity where you could find a home on the liberal side in a way that wasn't maybe possible earlier. But I also just wanted to ask, um, what what form did that move take? How did you decide, what were you writing on? How did you decide to reintegrate into your community? both intellectually and and in terms of race and ethnic identity? Well, it was a process, and the process continued through the aughts. I mean, all the way through my book, Race, Incarceration, and American Values, which is 2008. Uh, One of the things I was doing in those years, 95, 6, 7, 98, I was writing a weekly, I mean, a monthly uh, column for the New Republic. Uh, What did they call it? Uh, Hard Questions. Hard Questions was the feature. I'm not sure when it originated. It might have been when Andrew Sullivan was the the editor. Uh, Might have been a little bit after that. Uh, But uh, uh, what it was, was there were six of us, I think, rotating uh, uh, pundit philosophers, man. I don't know how else to put it. Uh, you had Michael Walzer. Michael Walzer was one of the people who was writing this column. You know who I'm talking about. He's a very formidable political theorist. Um, and I was in their, in their uh, rank and would get called upon to, to write a column. So I was writing about a lot of different kinds of stuff. Uh, but it was, it was all, um, you know, so it was all kind of, I don't know how to label it now. Uh, I wouldn't call it progressive exactly. But it was it was oriented toward you know what's going to work. So for example, um, James Q. Wilson and Robert Solo. Robert Solo is the distinguished economist, one of my teachers, Nobel laureate, uh, emeritus professor at MIT, um, had both written uh, little books about welfare. Uh, James Q. Wilson had said, "Morality matters, and families are the place where values are shaped." Um, and he said, but we can do something about families. And he talked about uh, home 
visitation by nurses to poor mothers after birth, and other such interventions. Uh, Bob Solo uh, was always interested in, in work, in, in unemployment, in labor, in labor market issues and, and policies, manpower training, uh, this kind of thing. And he had a piece in which he extolled uh, the effectiveness of certain programs. And I put the two of those different bodies of contemporary work together, and I composed a piece in which I said, you know, the left and the right don't really disagree with each other that much when you get down to it. You couldn't be more ideologically disparate than James Q. Wilson and Robert Solo on one hand, but on the other hand, when you take a good look at what they're doing, you see that there are practical solutions to the management of, you know, important social uh, institutions like schools or like uh, work preparation or like uh, medical uh, public health support for indigent uh, young families or things of this kind where a common ground can be found. So I wrote a, a lot of stuff like that. Um, I, I used the column to take some shots at Charles Murray. That went on for a couple of three, four years after the bell curve because Murray didn't go away. He, you know, he kept speaking up. So I had to keep, you know, kind of, uh, kind of rebutting. Uh, I wrote, I, I waxed philosophic a little bit, you know, because I had gone through this religious phase and I had become more aware of some of the great questions of theology and, 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 you know, uh, a moral philosophy and so from time to time, you could find me doing that uh, on, on one thing or another. Um, I wrote about affirmative action on, on more than one occasion. Proposition 209, the ballot proposition that banned affirmative action in California, came along in 1996. <coughs> and I, I, uh, I wrote about that and subsequently uh, continued to write about affirmative action. You know, um, I wrote about a lot of different things, uh, but they were all more or less domestic social policy related uh, themes. And my posture was more or less a, a centrist, maybe mildly left of center, but certainly not far left of center uh, uh, kind of take and with a solutions oriented um, uh, focus. Uh, that, that's some of what I did. I was running an institute at Boston University called the Institute on Race and Social Division, which I founded in 1996, and I ran it for six, seven years uh, under the, uh, it, with the blessing of John Silber, who was uh, president of the university at that time. I came friendly with him. Um, and it was an interdisciplinary workshop. I mean, it was a, you know, we had maybe uh, Ten offices up on the third, the fifth floor of a converted apartment building in uh, uh, on Commonwealth Avenue in Boston, and I had six, seven, eight fellows, be postdocs who would be spending a year. Uh, some of the alumni, I, I'm very proud of Stephen. Tell us, oh my! If I start naming people, I will not name everybody. <laughs> Political scientist who's at Johns Hopkins, and I'm very proud of Kerwin Charles, economist, who's dean of the. Uh, of the School of Organization and Management at Yale. And, and, and uh, I'm, I'm very proud of all of the fellows who progressed through. The young Roland Fryer, who went on to fame as, a, as an economist at Harvard, was a graduate student fellow around the Institute on Race and Social Division uh, toward the end of my, of my time there. It's where I uh, wrote the book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, which came out of the Du Bois Lectures which I gave at Harvard in 2000 when I was running the Institute on Race and Social Division. I raised money. 
I organized lectures, and I started doing interdisciplinary teaching because I was uh, appointed also in the university professors uh, at uh, Boston University, which gave me the possibility of teaching outside of my field. And so I teamed up uh, with Alan Wolf, the sociologist, political scientist, uh, to teach a course. I teamed up with Charles Griswold, the philosopher, to teach a kind of great books course on, uh, you know, uh, history of political theory. And, you know, I ended up reading, I read Hume, I read Locke, I read Smith, um, you know, I read Marx, I read Marx, Daniel, uh, you know, and, and, and stuff like that, and, and try to, you know, uh, get outside of the box of my confines as a social scientist. I had a a terrific intellectual experience during my uh, my decade plus at, at Boston University in the 1990s. Um, you know, was I sharply conservative? No, no. I mean, I was actually in a fight with some of my fellows. Uh, Jorge Garcia, who's a philosopher, a moral philosopher in Ephesus, um, was... Uh, who's at Boston College, if I'm not mistaken, was a fellow there. And we were, he and I were fighting all the time about colorblindness because he was a colorblind, you know, absolutist almost. And I was more of a, no, 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 colorblind is a faux uh, ethic. It's a faux public ethic. You can't, you can't get beyond race without taking race into account. I tried to say that in the most sophisticated way that I could. But that was, that was where I was coming from. That's certainly the view reflected in the anatomy of racial inequality, which is 2002. Um, and I was beginning to get pissed off about incarceration, uh, about the just the sheer weight, I mean, the huge weight of it um, and the racial disparity in it um, and beginning to formulate the outlook that in, ended up maturing into the argument that I make in that 2008 book, which is also a set of lectures, the Tanner Lectures that I presented at Stanford in 2007 called Race, Incarceration, and American Values. So... Um, I was drifting. I was drifting to the left. Uh, certainly, although I never arrived at the left, I never abandoned my commitment to uh, the neoliberalism that you heard me talk about in our previous conversations, where I, you know, was enamored of the workings of the market and skeptical about regulation and all of that. I, I, I never really abandoned that. But on the race questions. Um, I, I definitely took up a much more uh, liberal attack, uh, and it lasted through the end of the first decade of the 20th century, 21st century. So, a question that I have is, is as you were making this move, um, what connection, if at, any, uh, if at all, did you see between your um, economic thinking with, I mean, let's just define it as like on the right um, and your r- r- thinking about race was less justified as, as sort of like center-left liberal. Did the people you were discussing, uh, you, you, people who were your new cohort, did you ever discuss these economic issues and their relationship to these questions, or were you able to focus mostly on the racial side without discussing the economic um, things? Because just as someone who was a, a younger person at the time, I don't remember class or discussions of economics being particularly dominant in the discourse before the recession of 2008. So I'm just wondering how you were able to navigate that. Or was it not, you didn't have to navigate it at all? I don't know. Uh, I, I guess I did not navigate it much. 
Um, it's a it's a question for me to ponder. I think the in, in a more sustained way than I'm going to be able to do right here, the connection between my intellectual identity as an economist on the one hand and my intellectual uh, endeavors in the area of race, uh, uh, race debate and, 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 and race uh, argument. On the other, um, I, I mean, I, beyond market interactions, that's the subtitle of a piece. I have a piece in the Journal of Economic Perspectives, uh, 1998. I'm not gonna remember the title of it exactly but it's on the economics of discrimination and I want to get beyond market interactions. And if I go on much in this vein, I'll repeat myself from previous discussions that you and I have had about social capital. But the point is the limits of economic uh, 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 factors in accounting for uh, the, the social disparity that by race, where the limit is not only to invoke culture, Certainly, culture, quote unquote, quote, I don't want to get into a big argument with people, um, is some part of the story of what's going on within African-American society that one might want to pay attention to. But also to note that uh, uh, the thing that you're calling racism and discrimination is itself a, a very complex social phenomenon. It, it, it's not... Only, you know, the, the crude uh, Marxist in the race analysis would have said, well, it's about capital trying to find a way of minimizing cohesion among workers by, you know, setting them against one another. Or it's about rent seeking and one group of workers trying to protect and hoard opportunity, hoarding their share from the other, something like that. It's about power. Well, it is partly about power, but it's also partly about identity. I mean, to me, the clearest illustration of this is intermarriage. Because the races only exist in per, per, perpetuated form, the races. The races only continue to exist from one moment to the next because we reproduce them. And we reproduce them in the interstices of our intimate so association. We, we reproduce them in the choices that we make, choices about reproduction, but also choices about identity, choices about self-making, about how a person decides to manage the complexity of their genetic and, uh, you know, uh, phenotypic inheritance, how they express it, how, how they, who are they, who's like them, who are they, we, you know, they have this saying, I went in the room and I didn't see anybody who looked like me. Uh, that that uh, sentiment is incomplete because it doesn't tell me what you define to be the you to, for which you're looking for uh, a confirmation and what you see in others. I go into a room and I don't see any people who are as intellectually oriented as I am most of the time. I don't find anybody who, quote, looks like me, close quote, because the main thing that I'm, anyway, I go on too long. You see what I'm getting at? What I'm getting at is it's not just economics. What I'm getting, getting at is the limit of the economic framework or paradigm in trying to fathom uh, the, the social complexity of race. So there, there might have always been some limit to it. I don't know if what you're asking me about is uh, what do I think about the trade-off between inflation and unemployment, or what do I think about the tax bill, uh, or about the decline of unions, or whatever about William Julius Wilson and manufacturing freeing the fleeing the central city. You know, if you're asking me that kind of economics, I don't do that kind of economics. I mean, I'm not. I've never done that kind of economics as a as a scholar. 
Uh, so I didn't have that to give over uh, in, in, in terms of turning my attention to race. I've always been a conceptual guy, a theoretician, an abstract of, of you know, uh, kind of a framer of, of the thing and to try to synthesize what, I, what it is I learned from the empirical inquiries of others into some, some kind of coherent uh, account. Uh, I, am I being responsive to you, Daniel? No, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is something that like would take a historian years to work out. So it doesn't make sense, you know, for, for there to be an answer. But it's kind of interesting because what I'm hearing you uh, doing uh, is kind of incorporating the postmodern critique of the 1990s about the multiplicity of identities and the multiplicity of like what today is, I think, in a vulgar fashion kind of called lived experiences into the analysis of economics. So it's just interesting how even you were in somewhat, uh, in some sense, in influenced by those types of critiques that came, you know, from the decon- essentially from the deconstructionists and, and Derrida and others like that in the 1990s, which is very interesting. Um, so I remember, I think I started listening to you and John in 2007, 2008. So when I first am introduced to Glenn Lowry as a first year graduate student, he is he is a liberal, you know, in my mind, at least. And I remember after Obama won, I remember, I always remember you're like Barack Hussein Obama, Barack Hussein Obama. So I just want you to, and John, and John actually says, is, you're going to keep on saying Hussein, aren't you? But, um, which I think was a funny interaction, but uh, could you reflect a bit on the Obama, um, the Obama victory? Because I think that's a crucial moment in not only American politics, but American intellectual politics, black politics, everything. So I was wondering if you could sort of, what does that moment mean to you? And, and how did it, how do you view it as informing where you went in the last, you know, 10, 12 years? Well, it was obviously important. Um, you invite me to reflect on something that probably deserves a great deal more thought uh, and will receive a great deal more thought, not just for memoir writing purposes, but as a general retrospective on things, there's no doubt that the Obama phenomenon is very important. Um, I was against Obama from the left uh, for a long time. He was inauthentic. I remember. Yeah, I remember that. He was a carpetbagger. I didn't like the speech in Philadelphia that he gave in uh, the, during the campaign after the Reverend Wright, the Reverend Wright, uh, goddamn America thing blew up on him. This is his pastor at the church, the Trinity United Church of Christ, which Obama and his families were members at for many years, for 20 years, as Sean Hannity never tired of reminding us. Uh, and uh, he, he gave this speech in which he basically said, he almost patted Reverend Wright on the head. He said, I can understand his zeal, but uh, he's kind of out of step with the times. And, and you know, he, he, he made this unifying appeal to his uh, core uh, uh, you know, his core metaphor, you know, we're not a red America or a blue America, we're what I mean, we're not a black America or white America, we're the United States of America. It's in my very DNA. It's in my very DNA. How I resented that. Uh, he was appropriating his uh, multiracial heritage on behalf of a claim that even in 2007, 2008, I could see was pie in the sky, hope and change and all that. This is how I saw it. His, his uh, 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 life story is told in Dreams from My Father. You know, he ends up with Michelle on the south side of Chicago. He's running for office. 
if I had been a voter in Chicago with a choice between voting for, was it Bobby Seale? Was that the one who uh, beat him in that, in that election? Uh, I don't think it was that. House but it was something. No, but it was something like that. I, I, don't, I don't think yeah, it was Bobby Seale. No, Seale. no, it wasn't, it wasn't Bobby Seale. Of course it wasn't Bobby Seale. Yeah. But it was, it was one of those guys who had been a Panther. It was a Panther. It definitely was a Panther, yeah. And that, who had been, I would have voted yes. for the Panther. I would have voted for the Panther. Who is this guy? He flies in from Hawaii. You know, he claims to be black. How black is he? You know, uh, he's dissing Minister Farrakhan. And I'm not a Muslim, but, uh, and, and Minister Farrakhan is a piece of work, okay? He, he, he's, he's definitely outside the bounds. Uh, but I knew that there were many, many people on the south side of Chicago, not only Farrakhan, but the Muslim the Muslim tradition was respected on the south side of Chicago. Uh, I, I thought that, uh, frankly, the rich Jews, uh, <laughs> you know, that he was kind of, when, when, when I was told by, uh, oh man, I can't remember anybody's name now, the woman who became dean of the Harvard Law School, who was a big booster of Barack Obama, knew him as a student, that, uh, and, and Obama was the state senator. Oh, no, no. Uh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Sorry. You know who I'm talking about. It'll come to me. Um, Robert Putnam, the political scientist, had formed a group called the Saguaro Seminar on Civic Engagement, a, long, a well-funded, long-running workshop on civic engagement in America. And he invited prominent people, including from academia, business, arts, and politics, to participate. And Obama came to one of the meetings, and I met him. And the scuttlebutt... Behind Martha Minow, Martha Minow, the scuttlebutt behind the scene was he's going to be Senator Obama one day. He's going to be Governor Obama one day because he was tall. He was he was beautiful. He was uh, uh, charismatic. Uh, he, he was smart. He was guarded. He was careful. I can't remember a single thing he said. And that was not by accident. Uh, and And they had great hopes for him. And I thought, who is this guy? I mean, this is not my, this is not my Messiah. This is not my, you know. And then he appropriates the racial inheritance. He now becomes the first black president. Martin Luther King had a dream. Now the dream comes true. I thought it was a complete crock, frankly. I thought, how could people believe this? Um, so uh, I, I thought he was a, a guy on the make. And he had a really good shtick, uh, and he had some skills. Uh, and you know, uh, but I didn't, I didn't trust him. Uh, and I, I came around again. There's the cover story, and then there's the real story. I mean, the real story. I won't even bother with the cover story. The real story is, how are you going to exist as an anti-Obama person in the in post 2009 America? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was no future there. And, you know, I, I mean, I was always a little bit skeptical about the hype, but I mean, you know, he was obviously better than John McCain as uh, somebody to be running the government of the United States. There's certainly a lot more dynamism there. Uh, and he, he, you know, he managed okay. He did what he did. We could talk about what he did. I don't think he handled the race questions all that well, but I, but I came around. And uh, the fact of his election was certainly historic. And uh, so powerfully resonant in the country, it was hard not to be affected by that. Um, and, uh, you know, 
I found myself basically, um, you know, given, given the choices at hand, basically, uh, in, in, in the, in the kind of pro Obama, pro Barack Hussein Obama camp. Uh, that's really interesting. And this probably, there's a lot more to get into, but uh, I really want to get into this because I think this is crucial for my generation. I'm born in 1984, right? And so I grew up in the 1990s in the end of history. America's the greatest thing on earth. Capitalism will provide for us all, blah, blah, blah. But of course, what happens after 9-11? We get two disastrous wars, Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, you know, which kind of give the lie to this sort of America indispensable nation going to make the world better, you know, fostered at least the rock on the lie, I would say. And then we get the 2008-2009 recession, you know, financialization of, and just shows the problems of financialization, the problems of, you know, the repeal of Glass-Steagall, all of these things. And I just want to situate it because I think these are the... Millennials didn't become left wing out of nowhere, right? They were promised something, and the promise many of us think, at least today, was a lie. Um, so I was just wondering, how did you, who, 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 you know, had these particular commitments? What did you think of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and what did you, what did, what was your takeaway from the recession, which I think has made many people today very, very skeptical of deregulation and skeptical of even capitalism as a political economic system and its ability to provide goods for a polity. So I, I, I'd love to hear your reflections on those Afghanistan, Iraq recession. So there's a journalist called Christopher Lydon. He's a friend of mine. You find him on, on the internet uh, somewhere. He used to be public radio in Boston for many, many years. He, he does the kind of interview show thing. And shortly after Obama had been elected, Chris was so enthusiastic and ebullient about Obama. And I was still in my, fuck Obama uh, mood in my, in my fuck Obama period. And he said, Obama, Obama. And I said, fuck Obama. He put Larry Summers in charge of the money. Damn him. Because Larry Summers and Timothy Geithner and all those guys and the bankers behind them had charge of the money. And that's where Obama was going to go. Now, in a way, that was a cheap shot. It was easy to say. But it's also true. It's, a, it's, a, it's also true. I would have been... Man, I was radicalized by a lot of stuff. The Iraq war was, I remember giving uh, remarks at the university professor's program commencement and probably would have been 2005. Uh, It might've been 2005 because I left uh, Boston University in 2005. But in any case, I devoted it all to denouncing the Iraq war to, to, um, Denouncing the arrogant presumption, the lying, the I mean, the hundreds of thousands dead, the millions of refugees, the the awful uh, carnage, the pointlessness, the empowerment of the Iranians, the the madness of it. You know, um, I was against the Iraq War, full stop. You know, that's again easy to say, but it's true, and I'm on the record. I mean, you know. Um, uh, the, the elites definitely failed us. I mean, there's not any doubt about that. <laughs> the elites, def, def, I don't know if Michael Moore has got it right, but he's not wrong about everything. <laughs> you know, the filmmaker. Uh, they, they failed us. Uh, and um, I always thought, and I guess I still think, I mean, I'm, you know, if I'm a neoliberal, I'm a neoliberal, but I still think that 
the people who basically were in the casino betting my money, getting rich if they won and leaving me holding the bag if they lost. I mean, that's basically what went down. Needed to feel some pain in the aftermath of the crash. They needed to go broke. They, they needed to be bankrupted. They needed to be dispossessed. Their stock should have been taken over. They should have been rendered zero. They should have been zeroed out. They don't, they don't have a right to be rich. You know? Uh, and even if it wasn't good policy, it would have been damn good politics. <laughs> it might have sent a shiver through the financial system and dried up the energetic uh, engine of finance by just a little bit. But we could have lived with that, in, in, in my opinion. There should have been much more grave consequences uh, for, those, for those people that actually befell them. Uh, Obama was quoted somewhere as saying Lloyd Blankfein was a savvy businessman. I believe that that's an exact quote. What do you think of Lloyd Blankfein? Oh, he's a savvy businessman. Somebody should have been telling Brother Barack, you know, man, nah, no, no, no. Don't don't point out that he's Jewish. That would be wrong. But but definitely blast him every chance you get. <laughs> so so I, I I guess I thought that, but I guess really what we're headed toward here, Daniel, is the racial thing because I think I don't really start souring on the left until we get to uh, Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and Black Lives Matter and. If I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon and Al Sharpton and uh, and all of that. And 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 there, you know, I I I thought, you know, I've said this before. I I, I won't belabor the point. I thought an opportunity for, for the country was missed by the first black president, who, knowing that he would be only sixty years old or so when he left, fifty eight or whatever when he left office, fifty six. Gosh, how young I would say when he left office and that his post-presidency was going to be much, much, much more important to his life than his presidency, chose to preserve his uh, viability and his reputation within a certain set of forces of American elitism by not doing what I thought the country needed to be done in the wake of the civil disturbances that emerged at the Freddie Gray and all of that, the Baltimores and the Fergusons and all of that which was to say, which was to stand up for law and order. <laughs> I'm not going to mince words. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Which was to say, as between the um, uh, responsibilities of office attended to me being the chief executive and the center of political responsibility in a nation in crisis, which is to affirm order, and law, as between that on the one hand, and me continuing to represent this mythic ideal of some kind of embodiment of some kind of aspiration for some kind of romantic racial liberation and freedom on the other. He basically chose to maintain his viability in the latter narrative uh, and, and, uh, and made mistakes. Um, I think Al Sharpton was a mistake. The deployment of Al Sharpton as an ambassador to America and to black America on behalf of black people by the government of Barack Hussein Obama 
was a mistake. It was bad for the country. I think this. It was bad for black people. I think that. That's what I actually think. Okay, I thought it was the easy path. I thought playing to the editorial pages, playing to the popular sentiment at that moment was a loss of an opportunity. I think the only person who could ever have changed the direction of this juggernaut that now careens seemingly out of control, which is this uh, antipathy for the forces of order and legitimacy of, and so forth in the, in the country. The only thing that could have stopped it was a black chief executive saying something other than if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. Doing something other than deploying the Justice Department to serve as a counterweight uh, to the, the findings of innocence of police officers and so on and so on. I know you don't disagree with this, Daniel, or at least I would strongly suspect that you would disagree with this. But, uh, but that's what I thought. And I, and I, I hold it against uh, Barack Hussein Obama. I say he let me down, us down. He rose to the position of president as a black man. Uh, and then with the opportunity to do something that only a black president could have done, frankly, I'll tell you this, the truth. I don't believe the summer of 2020 would have happened if Obama had bit the bullet, assuming that he was inclined to do so in any way, shape or form, and, uh, and, and had a much more uh, pro-law enforcement posture I don't, I don't even know if Donald Trump, certainly not that dimension of Donald Trump's portfolio would have been possible. In other words, I'm saying to you two mistakes now. At the beginning of the two terms, failing to smack the bankers on their ass and creating Occupy Wall Street. And at the end, failing to hew to a center line, a center line. It didn't have to be right wing. It didn't have to be fascistic. Of the maintenance of order, there's only mobs in front of courthouses are not due any respect whatsoever. A mob in front of a courthouse is to be denounced. That's not how you do justice, et cetera. A failure to do that, which I think has had uh, its repercussions in the uh, events that we've seen since. I don't believe the summer of 2020 after George Floyd would have been possible if Obama had stood up for law and order in 2014. Uh, Glenn, I think there's a lot there. Um, I just want to say that from my perspective, I think there's a broad loss of legitimacy of which um, all of these movements that you're referring to are reflective. And so then the philosophical question comes, at what point and in what way does the demos have a right to express its feelings regarding the state authority? Um, but I just, before I... Uh, um, before we move on, I just want to ask uh, one specific question, and then and then I'll ask you another one, but I'll let you answer this first. What do you think, so there's a mob in front of a courthouse, what do you think Obama should have done? I assume you're not in favor of police violence, or sort of the arrest of journalists, or the beating of journalists, or things no, along no, those lines. No, no, I think you should have given uh, uh, speeches in which instead of uh, equivocating and saying, uh, we understand that people have ex uh, reasonable expression. He should have said, there's no excuse whatsoever for what you're doing. He should have said, I want to know everybody who broke the law and I want them arrested and brought uh, to trial. If you threw projectiles at police officers, you're going to be held accountable. If I've got facial recognition software that can find that you were among the looters who walked out of there without paying for those goods, you should be held accountable. I think he should have told people, this is not Emmett Till. You're hysterical. This is not Emmett Till. This is the United States of America. Flawed as it is, it's not the 1950s United States of America. Have you noticed that I was elected president as a black man? 
Uh, I think he should have told them that the cops are essential to the maintenance of civil order in our society. They must be held accountable when they step and follow the law, but they are not our enemy. They are essentially our friend. I don't, I mean, it wouldn't have been hard to write those speeches, Daniel. No, no, for, for sure. And how would you respond? So this isn't my area, but I know one of the big critiques is that like, um, there's a lot less public space. Protest itself has become criminalized. Um, things along those lines. Because protest is, is not protest foundationally American. Uh, the disruption of order is profoundly anti-tyrannical and that it's baked into our DNA as much as law and order, just from a philosophical perspective. Okay, I, I assume this is an extended, this is, uh, this is civil disobedience on steroids. This is understanding that protest is organic, that people don't simply decide randomly to come out of their houses, that there are structural, historical, cultural, political, economic, um, in middle of a pandemic, underpinnings that are implicated when I see disorder. So simply wagging your finger in the face of the disorderly and telling them to go back inside is a fool's errand because it's not going to have any effect, but it's also intellectually shallow because it doesn't understand the context in which disorder is expressing itself. As you can see, I'm familiar with the argument. (laughs) But the president of the United States should have made different speeches. That's what I'm saying. He didn't have to be a socio-historical political analyst. He needed to be a leader, a leader of the country. And so I, this is me. I mean, many, many people with this. Maybe most people would disagree with what it is that I'm saying. But um, I ask you to contemplate my, uh, my counterfactual, which is, I think, a different kind of leadership in 2012 to 2016 would have, A, made it less likely that, and of course, the banker thing is very important here, that Donald Trump would have become president of the United States. Have you read Michael Sandel's book, uh, The Tyranny of Meritocracy? Uh, Daniel? But I've read, I've read quite a bit about it, but I haven't okay. read the book. It's- well, I, I think it's brilliant. I actually really, I really do think he's got his finger on something. I mean, he's talking not only about the United States of America. He's saying that the effects of globalization and the inequality engendering consequences of 21st century political economy across the globe have dispossessed people, have left 50-year-old people without any skills and without any way of making $75,000 a year, which is what they need to be able to live in that modest little home that they have out there in that near-end suburb. He's, he's saying the winners, who are the global elites, who are the people like me, who can make a living without ever getting out of bed. I'm not in bed right now, but I'm not far from bed. <laughs> or who jet around the world and do deals, you know, and whatnot. Separating out like this, the top 1% getting half the income gains and what all that kind of stuff. And they feel themselves winners. They think they're justified. And this poor schmo over here, who's a decent guy or gal, worked all their lives trying to eke out a modest living. And now the town where they had a small business has gone dusty and dry. Uh, The factory is closed down. The job has moved to China. This is exactly the person that Donald Trump was speaking to in 2016. It's the kind of person that populist leaders in uh, democracies around uh, Europe and, and, and around the world have been speaking to of the last decade, and uh, Sandel sees in it the what he calls meritocratic hubris, which, which is this idea that if I end up on top, I got it coming, I earned it. And by contrast, and necessarily, if you end up on bottom, tough luck, sucker. You earned it too. You earned your bottom status too. And that that is crushing to a sense of the common good. 
to, to a sense of the fact that we're all in this together. And it allows for, uh, allows for identity politics. This is another argument altogether, but I think it's, it's not wrong. Uh, you know, we're not all in this together anymore because the rich are going all over here and they're isolating and whatnot. Well, I know I'm black. I know I'm a woman. I know I'm gay. I, I know I'm a, you know, I can find a sense of belonging and identity and it's a more appealing option to me to the extent that uh, political uh, mobilization on behalf of the common good uh, has become stymied. So um, anyway, I, I'm ready <laughs> here. Uh, we were talking about Obama. I ended up well, so this is so. What I would say is that, like, I'm not sure Obama or, and, and I'm no fan of Obama. Like, if you'll read my review, really no fan of Obama. I think he <laughs> believes one thing, and that's Barack Obama. And I think his post presidency has been shameful, just taking all that money in a in an era of extreme inequality, like the Clintons, who have also been shameful. But that's that's another that's a, a, another argument. But what I would say is that the structural forces were so. Um, were so were so crucial that I'm not sure Obama would have himself, even though he could have made a message, would have made much of a difference. But I want to move on to something else very quickly, um, okay. which is um, so how do you how do you address the sort of what I would say under for people under forty um, the increasing illegitimacy of the American system and American capitalism specifically, and you see it in voting patterns, never in American history has there been such a large generational divide? And I think it's, you know, from the Marxist perspective, it's because people under 40, you know, control 4.1% of the wealth as opposed to 21% of the wealth, which was what baby boomers controlled at their same relative age and things along those lines. Right, exactly. And so, uh, and, and, and sort of the, those dislocations. But I was just wondering, as someone who's taken such a capacious view, what's your take on, that's a very new experience in American history, very new. Uh, yeah, I'd love to hear your attention to this. I'm not, uh, I am reminded of a book. The book is 10 years, 15 years old now called The Coming Generational Storm. The Coming Generational Storm by Larry Kotlikoff, Lawrence Kotlikoff, my friend, economist and uh, author. And uh, uh, you can find uh, all of his stuff at kotlikoff.net. Uh, but Larry's book, The Coming Generational Storm, is all about social insurance. It's about social security. And he does the numbers and he says, let's do a careful calculation. And what he means by careful takes like 30 pages to explain. But let's do a careful calculation about who's paying into the government and who's getting out of the government. And it turns out that, as you probably know, Social Security starts off and the early people in Social Security basically don't have a whole lot of time to pay in, but they get benefits. So they're obviously net beneficiaries. But the idea is roughly... On average, you pay in, you get out, and it's supposed to be somehow fair. But when you look carefully at the generational differences, we baby boomers are going to do fantastically well out of Social Security, all things considered. And you schmoes, you poor schmucks, are going to take a bath. I mean, because, you know, the, the deficit projected out over a very long horizon is just a real thing, man. You, you know, it, the numbers don't add up and the benefits are not going to be able to be sustained at current levels uh, in an escalating way uh, without, uh, without uh, unbearable, unfunded uh, uh, liability uh, implied by that. So that, that's, just one, that's just one indication. Of course, the recession and this collapse of the economy. And now, 10 years later, another collapse of the economy. 
uh, is hitting very hard people who are in that early trajectory of, of their careers. So, of course, that's true. And if you combine that with uh, the, the, you know, uh, demonstrable failures of the elite leadership of my generation, the greatest generation, the World War II generation, that was one thing. They did great. They did the they got out of the uh, the Great Depression. They got out. They they built the welfare state, the American welfare state. They 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 culminate in the Great Society or whatever. But um, we post World War II elites uh, have got a lot to answer for. So I, I can I can definitely see that. And so and then maybe we could go to this question because you spend your life mostly in the university. And so I'm sure you're aware about the transformations of the university, and I think it relates to this because just adjunctification. You know, three-fourths of American college professors are not tenure-track. They're adjuncts. They're poorly remunerated. They don't get benefits. They don't get career advancements. To the degree where, like, in my field of history, even if you go to the top, top programs, you're probably not going to get a job. So I was just wondering if you could reflect uh, as someone who's – existed in this one institution for the majority of your life, where you see it going and, and, and what do you think about the future of, of scholarship in the humanities and social sciences in a world that's oriented totally towards STEM? Um, you to, this social theory we've been talking about is not going to, but people say history will judge. History is not going to judge if there's not any historians. And I can tell, so in my graduate cohort, there are seven people, two of us got tenure track jobs, you know, and that is not unique. So I was just wondering if you could reflect on that and what you think about the, the present and future of the university system is, uh, will be with the total immiseration uh, of labor within that system. I noticed you didn't say anything about threats to freedom of expression or inquiry occasioned by cancel culture and all of that. So to uh, just very quickly lay my cards on the table, that's not the most important issue to me right yeah. now. The most important issue is adjunctification. Uh, and if, uh, if that's why for my, this, my small public perch, that's what I write about. You know, it's my generation. There won't be future scholarship, literally. That's also a problem for free speech. <laughs> well, again, I'm, I'm learning from you, uh, if not specific facts, then a general sensibility that I need perhaps to be more conscious of. I mean, the first thing I want to say is the Ivy League ain't the university. Okay, I mean, and by that, I mean the elite. I mean, Ivy League includes Stanford, it includes Berkeley. It, it, you know, I mean, the top tier of institutions are not the university. Um, we do have adjuncts helping to teach the undergraduate curriculum in economics, and I'm assuming in other disciplines as well. But the idea that you call them a professor grates on me. They are the help. Respectful, I, you know, God loves them. They're not at the intellectual core of the department. They're, they're teaching the service courses that have to be taught in any university that has an economics department, but they're not coming to the uh, international trade or the development and growth seminar and presenting a research paper where they analyze data from uh, Bangladesh and uh, whatnot, which, is, uh, you know, talks about, yeah. They're, they're not a part of that conversation. So they we don't think of them, at least I don't think of them as, Professors, but they're relatively few here at Brown. At Brown, um, I expect that if I were to uh, go across the road to the University of Connecticut or to Providence College or something like that, I'd see something that's very, very different in terms of that. Uh, so we're privileged. There's this 
there's this cocoon, you know, there's this thing that we're inside of in this, this bubble, which is a kind of, I don't know how long it'll last. Fortunately, I'm toward the end of the tenure here. So, you know, when the thing finally does collapse, because I think it probably does have to collapse at some point, uh, I will not be dependent on, on, uh, on it to, for my livelihood. Seriously, the adjunctification, the, the collapse of the humanities as a way of being able to make a life and what that implies about the future of these disciplines. I agree with you. I mean, I'm not against STEM. You say STEM is taking over. Well, STEM is important. But, but you know, if I can get a computer science degree at Brown and graduate with, with good uh, record and get a six-figure job as my first job in New York City or Cleveland or St. Louis or, uh, you know, Los Angeles, you know, you want me to be an English major? <laughs> uh, you, you can kind of see that that, that factor is going on. And uh, I remember uh, reading uh, Bill Derezowitz's book, uh, Excellent Sheep. Doesn't it resonate a little bit with the kind of thing that you're talking about here? Yeah, I, that's, I think, a proto-criticism of, of meritocracy. But it, I think he, it only focuses on Yale, you know, I think, which is, like you said, is a cocoon. And I like Derezowitz. He just came out with another book, which I think is pretty good. Um, and I think that's right. But uh, I just don't think, I mean, if you look back to the university in which you intellectually matured, it's a well-funded university where people like Glenn Lowry could make a career writing social theory about economics at some point. But now I think... The criticism, it's basically, a, I think, the data shows uh, inco- incontrovertibly it's a mechanism of elite reproduction. And the only people who are uh, going to allow, um, are going to be able to ask the great questions of modernity are going to be people who come from a particular class. And to me, that's a real problem, um, morally, ethically, and, and intellectually, and that's where we find ourselves, which is one of the reasons why I find the, um, the obsessive focus on cancel culture a bit problematic because it misses what's actually happening, which is this, probably one of the best institutions the United States has ever created, the public university, uh, is totally destroyed. It, it, it is totally does not exist in the way that it was. And to me, that's a foundational problem for America and this democracy. Okay. Now, I want to narrow this a little bit. I want to talk about City College of the City University of New York. So I'm going to narrow it a lot. My parents and grandparents all went there. Brooklyn College. Uh, that's a great thing. The question I have to ask is, and, and we know what that university has been to generations past, and it has done exactly what you would have the university do as far as I can tell. Um, I can remember reading Irving Howe's memoir, A Margin of Hope, which is a wonderful book. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he talks about alcove culture in the in the city university and city college, I should say, in the 1930s and 1940s. But I assume probably all the way into the 1960s, a similar kind of story could be told, maybe later. Not now. Uh, Now, this is not adjuncts at Harvard. This is a core public institution in a great metropolis that has been an engine of uh, enlightenment and uh, educational excellence and achievement and an entree into the life of the mind uh, for many working class people 
and it no longer does that. Uh, is it a lack of money? Uh, is it the, is it, what is it? I mean, uh, uh, that accounts for the fact that such institutions no longer, no longer exist. I think the data points to uh, the administratification of the university. And I think the big moments is when you get Board of Regents in the 70s and the 80s, business people being appointed to the Board of Regents as opposed to people invested in the institution. It's not like Clark Kerr who is running things. It's like Lloyd Blankfein. And so you get an institution that I think should exist outside of the market being forced to market logics of cost cutting. Why pay a full tenure track professor? I think CUNY professors, adjuncts were getting something like $2,500 a course. You know what? It's, 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 it's insane, Glenn. It's the, when you look at the data, it's disgusting. They recently got a raise, but something, nothing to live in New York City, maybe 3,500, but it's, I'm not so far off. I remember the exact numbers. So you're not, the teachers are not going to be as invested. I wouldn't be invested if I was getting paid $3,000 at eight different campuses. Um, so I just think, I, and I think it's a, I think it's a neoliberalization of an institution that, shouldn't be neoliberalized that should should it should not be a money maker you know universities shouldn't make money they shouldn't focus all their resources on patents and which is the one of the major reasons i think they invest in stem because that they want to have these like they basically want to have portfolios so uh, i think we're at a, a really crucial crucial moment and i just spare i want to say a couple of things of course stem is a fundamental part of the intellectual experience of the human race in the 21st century Agree. You know, we don't want to shut down STEM. We don't want to shut down STEM. No, but, but it's... Why? Let me just say this. I was a STEM major. I was a math major when I was in college. But I read... Uh, 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 I read Camus. I read Heidegger. I read Wittgenstein. I'm, I'm talking about me. Just, just uh, taking the philosophy courses. I mean, I read uh, Fanon. Uh, I read Sartre. Um, I, I read uh, Husserl. I, I read, you know... You know, I read I read uh, Russell and Whitehead. I mean, I, you know, I got a I got a really good education. Um, this is in the humanities; it's in philosophy. But I got a really good education at Northwestern University, and it changed my life. It provided a foundation. I mean, I would be a very different person, an intellectual today. Uh, I think much narrower and and much m- less interesting. And <laughs> you know, if I can say that. Uh, without the benefit of a humanistic education, abetted by the fact that I was required to take the German language to read uh, uh, Goethe and Kafka and Rilke and Mann. You know, I mean, I had to read these things. Uh, And uh, nobody should leave the university without having read books of that sort, in in my opinion. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Glenn, I believe uh, it took me a while. Uh, I haven't looked into this for a while, but I believe only one graduate economics program in the country requires a course in economic history. I think that's Berkeley. I think that's right. So, I mean, I I just wanted to highlight this as someone who's lived in the university for a long time. Um, And I sent you that Nation article, which goes into the statistics of it. Um, But, yeah, Yeah, I just wanted to get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. Um, I mean, we could go on for long. I, I could ask you a lot more, but I, I'll let you. What do you What do you think? Should we call it or should we go on? Yeah, I think we should probably call it. I think ninety minutes is a is a good a good little time. 
Uh, I promise the audience that I will not be back here two weeks from the day with Daniel Besner as much as I enjoy talking to him. But Daniel Besner is a very interesting fellow, as you can tell, very able intellectual historian and uh, is a, uh, is a uh, suitable interlocutor. So I think that he and I should talk again at some point in the future, Daniel. So to, to be continued. Yes, thank you so much, Glenn. Uh, I really appreciate it. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you.